Schneider. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Chabert Show. I am very excited for the guest today. His story is pretty fascinating and definitely different from like the previous shows I've had. His name is Kidus Asfa. He's the CEO of Cubic. Thanks for coming to The Chabert Show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So just to, you know, quickly, who are you and a little bit of background about like, uh, you know, yourself, that'd be great. So I'm Kedus Asfa, uh, son of Ethiopia, currently living in Nairobi and spent most of my adult life in the U.S. Born to a flight attendant mom. My father had multiple different lives from being in the army to being an academic in sociology, all the way to being in politics and later on a farmer. So in many ways, these two people have been very influential in my life to what I do now, which is running a company called Cubic, an environmental technology company that's turning hard to recycle plastic waste into low carbon and low cost buildings. Yeah, that's actually a great backstory. Um, you mentioned you lived your young adult life here in the U.S. When did you come from like Ethiopia and decide to come to the U.S.? Was it for schooling or college or... Yeah, it was for college. I was in Ethiopia wrapping up my senior year in high school mm-hmm. when I really did not know what I wanted to do next. I remember my dad telling me, well, it doesn't really matter what you do. What matters is two things. One, that you're the best at it. And two, it makes other people's lives better. So it was a really nice foundation for giving me <laughs> some context into how I should be thinking about my education. So I decided to do engineering. Not mm-hmm. sure why. But I think for me, I really love to solve problems. I loved math, physics. So I said, why not go into engineering? It seems like there's a lot of problems to be solved that way. So ended up getting a full ride to Duke wow. and double majored in biomedical and electrical engineering there. Wow, those are actually two different uh, <laughs> degrees. How did you manage learning both at Duke? I just out of curiosity. Yeah. So thankfully, there was a program that allowed double majoring in these two programs. One of the things that was super helpful was in biomedical engineering. It had a lot to do with how electricity and the body work, right? If you think about a pacemaker, if you think about, you know, an MRI, all these are areas that biomedical engineers ultimately design or research and design. So I had a really great opportunity to be able to overlap a lot of these two fundamental areas and live a passion of mine, which was, again, how I can take engineering and do something I really loved. Really fascinating. And then uh, did you get into like the professional world, like after Duke or did you go to grad school? Yeah. What I thought would have happened after graduating from college was that I worked for some medical devices company like a Medtronic or one of those. I remember my friend asking me to come to this info session for a Google career day at Duke. And and there was this person who was explaining how Google Maps was built. And I just found that story super fascinating that I wanted to learn more about that company, which I honestly did not know enough about. So what year was this out of curiosity? 2007 was when a lot of these events were happening. I think Google at that time went public or right around that time, right? Yeah, I think it went public 04, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. This yeah, is uh, right. a few years in, but like it's the the beginning of like the social media kind of 
area of MySpace and Facebook. But like for some reason, I thought that's when they went public, which you're correct. It is around 05, 04. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things happening at Google at this time. So they, mm. their core platforms were obviously Search, Maps yeah. was picking up, and they just had acquired YouTube and DoubleClick for their ads. And they were really starting to think about how to be more of a global company. They were starting to think about other verticals such as mobile. So Android was just coming online. So Mm -hmm. they were looking for a lot of smart, passionate, interesting people to join their company. It it was no longer a company where you had to be a software engineer to be there. So did you come to Silicon Valley or did you go to another location? So I was hired into the Mountain View office and I started with the globalization team. Basically, Mm. this was the team that was looking at taking Google's like most successful products globally. And one of the areas that they had to think about was how to contextualize that product. So in my case, I was working on really cool ones like Google Finance at a certain time with Google Maps as well. And Eric Schmidt had mandated that every product had to be in 40 languages. So I was part of the team that was making sure that could happen. So it was a really fun one to work on. And how long was this and how big was that team? Like how many years were you there? So I was there for a year Okay. and the team started off close to, I would say, 15 to 20 people tasked to do this mega thing. For, for, I mean, I was just out of college. I was pretty young, but it was very serendipitous that my first job was to see the world in many ways. Yeah, that's incredible. The fact that, especially in the, like, the heyday of uh, Google, where I feel like at that point, a lot of the original like 100 employees and 1,000 plus you know, we're still core, we're still there in those days and growing it. And yeah, uh, and just building like a global presence and brand must've been like pretty incredible to see even just one year, as you mentioned. So were you in the Valley just for that one year for Google? Um, did you travel for the role? Did you also kind of switch roles to another company or did you go into grad school? Like what's the, what happened next? Yeah. So I was there for a year. And I learned a lot. I mean, an incredible lot. Did not Mm. do as much travel as I would have wanted to, but I understood how these 40 languages that we were trying to roll Google into, contextualized into culture, into all of these different teams that we were working with across every single time zone. And as much as I felt there was a lot I was taking from Google at that time, For some reason, I I personally felt at that time that I was not getting an opportunity to really develop kind of my business acumen and like my professional skills, which I felt was super important to me. And I thought that going into consulting was the best idea (laughs) to get that. So right out of that first year, I went to Accenture as a management consultant and moved to DC and spent a few years there consulting for various government agencies. And I would say this was a very pivotal time for me when it came to how I was able to really become a professional in a weird way. Can you explain that? Because you you meant this is like a pivotal time and becoming professional. Like, what does that mean in your story? Yeah. As much as you can be able to know a lot, unless you're Mm -hmm. able to communicate about it, to different type of people. Sometimes it doesn't really matter how much you know in a career. And I was put in roles within Accenture where I had to take a very complex technology problem 
or solution and explain it to people who knew nothing about that technology. And I needed to make sure that they understood the value and get their buy-in. And going through that process of being able to create, you know, simple things like PowerPoints in very simple ways, being able to communicate in very simple language, being able to dissect a very hard concept and break it down so that people can understand bits and bytes of it were all things that I learned during that time. I mean, basically Accenture is probably one, if not the top brand you could think of as far as consulting is concerned too. So it's probably like the fact that you were at Google and then Accenture, like as a back-to-back was probably an incredible experience, you know, going after Duke, being in the Silicon Valley and then DC. How long were you in Accenture for? Stayed for three years. Okay. And then you basically, did you go continue career path? So what I'm trying to lead is like, did you go into grad school? When did you kind of have the itch to be an entrepreneur? (laughs) Not after that, I could tell you that. At Accenture, things were going really well for me, career-wise. But there was this thing that my parents always told me, which is, you know, try to, you know, definitely benefit from the privilege you've had from a great education and great exposure, Mm -hmm. but always make sure you come back home and pay it forward. And I felt like everything that I was doing didn't necessarily lead back to that. And I just saw this career that was sucking me a lot more into just doing corporate U.S. work, which Mm -hmm. I did not really want. So I actually quit my job and did not know what to do next. But this is when I decided to go back to grad school. I went to Princeton for public policy. And really what I was trying to take away from this was how do I find a way back home in a meaningful way? And I thought one of the best ways to do that was take all of this experience I've had in the tech side and couple it with what's typically known as international development. I wanted to understand that world better. And that's when I joined Princeton. And then right afterwards, I was able to join the World Bank to to lead. Yeah. And this was probably my first stint in a weird way in entrepreneurship because I was part of a team that was set up to try really new things, really crazy ideas within tech and innovation. At the World Bank? Yeah. Uh, What year was this? This was 2013. Okay. And then how long were you at the World Bank with this new team? About a year and a half. So what I was doing during this time was going to countries that the World Bank existed in. So there was two that I focused a lot on. One happened to be Ethiopia. The second one was Uganda. So I would go here and try to understand what kind of projects they have and how technology might make those projects better. It was a very simple concept. And I just spent a lot of time trying to marry these two things I learned from Google and from Accenture. The first one being understanding like the latest and greatest kind of innovations in tech, how it can be applicable in these spaces. But then the second was actually trying to explain this to people who have no idea about tech and show the value proposition. And a lot of this work actually then made me spend time in Uganda, where we were able to do a lot of cool work around preventing agricultural diseases by giving farmers a way to report when these diseases are happening to their crops and making sure that they had access to information on how they can prevent it. 
I mean, just that work alone was able mm-hmm. to eliminate a fast-growing disease around banana crops in Uganda. And banana is one wow. of the biggest kind of agricultural produce in the country. So it was very transformational. So again, cool. mm-hmm. yeah, for me, it was just another step forward to doing something that I really wanted, which is coming back home and paying forward for everything that I got. And then after uh, the World Bank, what did you end up doing? Were you still in actually like Ethiopia slash Uganda? Were you back in DC? What did you end up going after? So while I was working for the bank in Uganda, I caught the attention of the UNICEF team there. And Mm. the UNICEF team was doing something very similar. They were setting up an innovation group that can start transforming the way UNICEF thinks about technology and works. So they approached me and I came on board as their first ever product manager in the organization. Wow. So I spent about a year in Uganda and then moved to New York for an additional five years. And my job at UNICEF was going around the world, literally, anywhere you can think of from Chile all the way to Indonesia and in between on the map, and finding ways that tech can help save or protect children. Um, I would say the top three coolest things that I worked on, the first was a project that helped Vanuatu, the country, use drones for vaccine delivery and reduce the time that vaccines can be delivered from two weeks to six hours. Oh, Uh, amazing. I I worked on another project, uh, was using asymmetric mobile data collection to predict the outbreak of Ebola and DRC. And then the one that's been near and dear to my heart was the first project that I worked on at UNICEF which was setting up the first ever youth engagement platform called U-Report. It had close to 60,000 people when I joined. Right now, it's over 29 million young people across 90 countries that use this as a way to engage on things that they want to tell UNICEF and how UNICEF can then advocate with governments to change policies around. Well, that's a huge, uh, as you call it in Silicon Valley, hockey stick of a growth for a product like that. How long did that uh basically the project take you and grow it to that. And I'm surprised, like uh, I'm like obviously being in Silicon Valley, I don't hear things like this. There, it's a bit of a tunnel vision we have here where we kind of missed like the holistic stuff that tech can do with products like this. So, you know, like what are some like, uh, and I want to lead to towards obviously your product, what you're doing now, but just like, what are some success stories with that youth engagement platform? Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> So what's, what's one that like, I guess, like was like really interesting. And, and then it's like, was that the one or was that something else that kind of, you know, got you interested in what you're doing now with obviously Cubic? Yeah. You know, your report for me is, is a very emotional product because it really exposed how vulnerable young people are, but also how resilient they are to speak their mind and be a beacon for how countries should be. Okay. I think for for me, one of the most emotional ones that I've heard about was in Liberia during Ebola, where Mm. you built out your report. Really, the idea was, you know, during that time, schools were closed, right? So we just wanted to see how we can engage them. But we found a phenomenal amount of reporting from female students, young female students, saying that 
a lot of their teachers would only give them good grades if they provided some form of sexual act for them. Oh my goodness. And it was an overwhelming amount of feedback <laughs> from different people, anonymous. I mean, these are anonymous young people. And what we were able to do with that was actually identify where this was happening and make sure that the Ministry of Education took really quick action around it. So sometimes I think, you know, in tech, and I'm talking about even while we were doing things like you report in UNICEF, you get so yeah. bogged down with making sure that you have a product that works well and is like fulfilling all of these cool features that you really forget the human element about how it could be affecting one person's life in a really great way or in a really bad way, right? And I think this was one yes. of the use cases for us of how we noticed that a very simple thing as providing access to a young person to report anonymously about anything allowed them to change not only their lives, but so many other students' lives. Well, that was, uh, that was an incredible story and pretty touching. And so, I mean, you've probably dealt with so many others. And with the time we have, I want to... Um, I actually want to like kind of transition to like, how did you, you know, become an entrepreneur and how did you just decide on the cubic? Because I'm assuming when you were at UNICEF, you probably could have continued doing what you were doing at the level and scale you were doing, but something must've, and you, and this is kind of going to the root of what you were mentioning at the very beginning with, you know, your parents, how your mother was a, you know, a flight attendant that shows worldly, your father had like, you know, both like military and politics. And then he basically said, you know, be the best you can be and uh, make others bet lives better. Right. So you were doing that to a certain extent and with these kind of organizations, but like, when was the aha moment or like the kicker when you said, I have to do this and start this company specifically on your vertical. So you might be noticing a trend that, you know, everywhere I go <laughs> uh, career wise, it gets to a point where I, I feel materially things are successful, but then, something makes me pivot. In the case of UNICEF, I basically grew to be the co-lead of UNICEF Innovation, which is a really large portfolio. And I didn't get a chance to be doing the type of work that I started off doing, like you know, working on your report. So I felt a little bit detached from the grassroots work that I found the most impact in, found myself a lot more focused on kind of the bureaucracy of things. But there was a moment when my close mentor and friend, who was the country director for UNICEF and Ivory Coast, invited me over for a special project that he was starting. And this project was to transform plastic waste into bricks. And he wanted to make a lot of schools using this. And he just wanted my help to fundraise and, you know, to just be kind of a supporting arm for this hmm. work. When was this? This was in 2018. It started in 2018. So pretty recent. Yeah. And we started to get a lot more involved together in 2019 in setting this project up. So, you know, it helped them fundraise. We got the money we needed. And then, you know, I really wanted to be involved. So we started to invest some of my team's time into building out kind of the systems around this, like put down some framework on how they can be analyzing impact around it. But I personally was super invested for a reason. Around that same time, back home in Ethiopia, so in Addis Ababa, where I was raised, the largest landfill in the country had an avalanche. Oh. And it killed over 130 people around it. And for me, it was a big wake-up call around how cities 
grows so fast that we quickly neglect poor people, poor communities. Mm-hmm. And there are so many different types of impact, negative impact that it has towards them. And in a place like Ethiopia, unfortunately, the majority of us are economically poor. So I started to have a very different perspective towards this project that we were working on because we, as UNICEF, we already saw this direct linkage between exposure to plastic waste and childhood morbidity, such as malaria and diarrhea. We were seeing this growing affordability crisis around buildings and cities and it being inaccessible to to low-income communities and households. So I said to myself, man, if we can solve trash, there are so many things that we can be solving uh, Mm. in cities and ultimately in in a continent like Africa. So I took this project to a different lens of seeing how we can scale it. So mm-hmm. the project itself had built over 300 classrooms within a span of a year and a half. We had our own factory. It was going really well. So I decided that the next step needs to be for UNICEF to set up an investment fund. And this investment fund would really be focused on how companies that do something like what we did can get funding from us and we can help mm-hmm. them it's like basically like a spin-off idea, a startup idea from the UNICEF project, exactly. uh, but like obviously with the you know your startup and autonomy, you're not connected to them technically. You're just it, getting the funding and support. Yeah, and you know, being a co-lead in UNICEF innovation means you can do a lot of things that are kind of abnormal. In this case, mm-hmm. it just meant that mm-hmm. we'll kind of spin off a venture fund off of this, right? Yeah. Uh, I definitely, so, and sorry to interrupt, um, this is really, actually, uh, this is really fascinating. So I want to maybe like step back for everybody who's listening in to really understand. So Africa as a continent, it's still specifically in the U.S. more so than I think the rest of the world is not, there's a disconnect, right? I feel like this reminds me a little bit of like Asia Pacific, like APAC and how there was a disconnect until like the last 10 to 20 years, how that is, like that was exploded as a developed you know, developing countries to developed countries. And that's like 12 major markets now. So, you know, I believe there's like 52 countries. I might be mistaken with like the sub-Saharan Africa. There's like around 1.2 billion people. I think Ethiopia, your home country is like 120 million. Can you, uh, you know, maybe describe a little bit the breakdown there with the population, with some like some, you know, key industries. And then how does something like this can become like a, a revenue generating product in lieu of me obviously becoming, you know, helping the humanitarian side of things. I I can imagine that's a lot, but I want to kind of show that like stepping back more like macro and then to micro for everybody to understand. Yeah. It's important that you pointed this out. So let me throw out a few numbers. Um, Great. You're you're very close. It's 54 countries. Um, I feel embarrassed now. (laughs) uh, To be honest, I usually would say never say 54, but it's 54. So 54 countries, over 1.2 billion people in it. Mm. It's very soon. It's going to be a population larger than India and China combined. It is highly urbanizing. There's over 100 cities in Africa that have more than a million people in it. Um, 100 cities. Wow. Over 100 cities. That's incredible. A million people in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's hundreds of languages, but you would hear French, English, Arabic, Portuguese, Spanish, Mm -hmm. all within this continent. And it has obviously through its roots in colonialism, it also has a lot of linkages 
towards Europe as well from an economic perspective. But having said that, I think what makes Africa very interesting to me is that there's a resilience that nobody has understood yet. Most mm. of these economies have kind of been siloed and worked on in their own, but they're working. There are not that many failed states in Africa, as much as you would think. There are more failed states in the Asian continent than in Africa. And some of the things that I find really interesting is that there's a free trade agreement across many of these countries. There's a lot of free flow and movement. A lot of these countries have great policies for businesses to easily work there. So the potential is really, really large. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the misfortunes of Africa is that it's not always been able to be economically stable. And a lot of this has had to do with not having access to global markets in the past. And the type of access it's had is within the agricultural sector. So a lot of brain drain has happened elsewhere. So people like me who had a great opportunity and in their education and go to a place like Duke rarely come back. They would actually stay in the U.S. So that brain drain has made it really difficult for the economy of most of these countries to evolve. But here's where the hope has come in the past decade. Tech has really linked Africans to the rest of the world, not only from an information perspective, but also from just economic. You find a lot of coders, lots of developers, a lot of the young kids that I see in, in Addis running around with their backpacks, they're freelance like nerds, right? So there's a lot of cool, vibrant stuff that's happening. And I believe that there's a lot of attention that both VCs and large companies are starting to get because of this. And here's some example. Just last year, over $5 billion of VC money was given to Africa. Over $5 billion. Just to give you some context, 2014, there was only $21 million that went in for wow. VC. <laughs> right? So, yeah, so that's nine years. Like a yeah. huge, that's a huge difference, pretty much over 10, 10 times the amount of funding. So the, the other notion is like obviously infrastructure as part of this process. So I'm in the mobile industry and um, in Africa, I feel like it's a mobile first tech community because you know it's easier to be on a 3G or 4G or 5G network versus like creating pipelines and cable connections and so forth. And it's like ease of use to get to individuals that way. But I'm, that's maybe my ignorance. Like, can you explain a little bit about like, yeah, the infrastructure for like the tech community in Africa. And then I guess it relates to like the second point, which is like, you're obviously working on something unique, which is taking again, carbon, like plastic waste, turning into like high quality, environmental friendly infrastructure for building specifically right now for like educational programs and stuff. But yeah, that's the two kind of two prong question I'm intrigued to learn about. Yeah. So from a digital tech perspective, the infrastructure exists now. Here in Nairobi, I have a 5G network, right? But there's also a lot of fiber optic cables that are being laid out throughout the continent, which is pretty phenomenal to see. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Think, so that is my ignorance, basically. Um, but I think the part that I found very fascinating is how a lot of the investment, especially from VCs now, has been around how we've been able to now use that infrastructure to actually build out the service infrastructure that's needed. So a lot of the investments have gone into fintech, for example, 
Mm, okay. so just to give wow. you an idea, you know, just being, you know, I could sit down here from Nairobi and be able to transfer money now to Ethiopia seamlessly through a mobile app with a bank there, right? Wow. So the acceleration is high. And I think the reason why this is important is if we ever wanted to create meaningful and scalable service industries within, let's say, e-commerce, these pipes are really needed. So mm-hmm. it's been accelerated well. While this is all well, there's a lot of things outside of like the digital space or within the services space that's still lacking on the infrastructure side, which is housing. And that's mm-hmm. something that, you know, as Cubic, we decided to focus on. Okay. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. And I guess like one last question about the, you know, like the breakdown in Africa. So, you know, in the United States, I the hub and spoke model, I call it, which is like very traditional, you know, like tech is in Silicon Valley, entertainment's in Los Angeles, energy's in Houston, automobile was in Detroit, finance is in New York, right? And there's a lot of interconnectivity there. In Europe, you obviously have like certain big industry in each big city in every country, like London, UK, you know, probably in Germany, there's a few like Frankfurt for finance and, and so forth. So like, how does, you know, like you were mentioning you're in Nairobi, Addis Ababa in, in Ethiopia, you know, there's Lagos, Nigeria, like how do these cities are connecting with each other to help each other out on a, a business level? Or is it still very early? Is everybody trying to position themselves as like the hub now come work here? Because I know, for example, Twitter, they had like, I guess, decided to be in like uh, Ghana, like mm-hmm. uh, as far as like being the hub for their offices. But like, how does that work? Like if a company wants to come to Africa, like where do they just, is it better to decide on a few locations? Is it one? Is there like, what are some the key things here for people to understand against? Yeah, I wouldn't say there are cities or markets that have kind of defined themselves as the hub for a specific thing yet. I think they're all just trying to attract investors. And a lot of these focal points to date have been, you know, Dakar, Lagos, you know, South Africa, so Cape Town, Joburg, Nairobi, and Cairo, right? This is where the majority of investment kind of VC money has gone to so far. Now, having said that, there are countries like Rwanda, which, you know, have advertised that you know, within the first two hours of landing in Rwanda, you can have a business license and operate, right? So, and there've been, you know, Carnegie Mellon recently uh, set up their first uh, satellite campus in Rwanda. So it's very encouraging to know that, you know, at its foundation, governments are starting to see the value of attracting investors in this way, because ultimately investors are the ones who are going to be able to upskill students and society. They're the ones who are going to be able to invest in the infrastructure that's needed. I think in the past, it's been kind of the reverse, which is, you know, government does everything. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that hasn't worked. So this is what we're seeing to date. And hopefully that acceleration will continue even in this perceived downturn within, you know, the venture space. Uh, Africa's yeah. been affected. It's actually continued to grow, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, that's interesting. And and I want to kind of like uh, with the time remaining, I want to focus on Cubic and like what you are and your company is working on and then like talk about like the future. So can you explain like the breakdown? You were mentioning, again, there's a lot of you know waste and from that waste, you basically kind of want to process that and use that as clean, renewable building infrastructure. And uh, like what are some success stories there? Yeah. 
So let me throw out three numbers before I okay. get into it, which are really important. 360 million tons of plastic go unrecycled every year in the world. 60 million of that is in the African continent. There's over a billion people who don't have access to affordable housing right now. Close to 300 million of those are in Africa. As you know, climate change, bad stuff happening there. 40% of that is contributed through real estate in some form. So looking at these three numbers, what we decided to do is create a company that tackles all three, starting from Africa. So as Cubic, what we do is we turn hard to recycle plastics into uh, very low carbon and very affordable building materials. And these building materials replace walls, which typically are made with some form of a cement-based product. And the problem with cement is that if it was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitting country in the world. So it's really bad and polluting. So mm. removing it is really great. It's a very price volatile commodity. So it's really difficult to, as a real estate developer, to focus on low cost housing using cement. Therefore, there isn't enough people that invest in low cost housing. So by being able to replace it and guarantee something that's you know, almost 40 to 50% cheaper like our product is great. But then there's the plastic waste. And biggest mm -hmm. issue around plastic waste is, yes, there's a lack of infrastructure on, in waste management, but plastic is super hard to recycle, right? Yeah. Even if you are in the Bay Area, I, I remember going to Santa Cruz and seeing piles upon piles of plastic just dumped into uh, makeshift kind of factories. And they were all coming from strawberry farms, right? And when I asked, well, can't it be recycled? They said, well, one is very expensive and two, nobody would buy it from us, right? So even in the US, like, yes, you are sorting out your plastics, but it's still most of it still goes into a landfill. It's just that it's hidden well, that it looks okay to you. But if you come to Ethiopia, or to other parts of the world, it's not hidden. It's in your face. And you see the problem right in front of you. So the innovation around plastic has been much clearer to do in a place like Ethiopia because there's a direct impact that we can be bringing. Can you explain a little bit of the tech involved here of actually taking the plastic and turning it into you know like reusable product? So there's seven types of commonly used plastics. And out of these, the ones that you would probably be familiar with is PET. So these are plastic mm -hmm. bottles, PVC that are pipes, right? And then there's all of these other types of plastic. Think of your yogurt cup or your styrofoam box and all that stuff, right? Think of like all the wrapping that comes in your Amazon bubble wraps, these are the things that are super difficult to recycle. If you think about plastic bottles, there's a huge industry for it that either recycles it or uses it to make polyester that ultimately makes your you know, H&M t-shirts, right? And then there's PVC, which is super toxic. So it's actually great that it's not being recycled because it emits a lot of bad stuff. But the other five are things that we focus on. So we basically take it, we buy it from collectors, we separate it, and after processing it to make sure that it's clean, 
we are able to use different proportions of this to make a formula that can make things like bricks and columns and are as safe are as structurally sound as the bricks and walls that are commonly seen in your house. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. And this is like, basically you're competing with like the bricks that you said, cement bricks that, you know, it's not safe for the environment. And you are obviously monetizing this. So do you have a couple like success stories here on how this has actually been used in fruition? You were mentioning some of the markets possibly like, let's think Addis Ababa and Ethiopia. Is there other places? Yeah. So we just started our first market in Ethiopia. So we have a factory that takes 45,000 kilos, so 45 tons of plastic every single day and can transform it into into walls that can make close to five to 10 houses every single day. Amazing. We partnered with the Addis Ababa municipality to have a processing facility on that landfill that I mentioned to you where that avalanche happened. So we're supporting communities there. We're giving collectors direct access to our market from there. And we're empowering over 2,000 women by doing just that. Now, when it comes to sales, we quickly realized that demand will definitely not be our issue because we are 40% cheaper. We're twice as fast to build with. We are able to have a finished product like any other cement-based product. So we can paint it, we can drywall it, we can plaster it, right? So real estate developers have a no-brainer decision to be making between using cement and using a cubic product because the look and feel is the same. Pretty incredible. So some of our clients include those that are making affordable housing units throughout the country, that are making clinics and schools, that are making dormitories for factory workers. So we've been getting a lot of clients because of that. Okay. <laughs> and then I guess the, the like the last few questions is, I'm a you know, believer like the future. Where do you see the future of uh, you know Cubic for the rest of this year and beyond? And then how do you see kind of the future of uh, you know like. Uh, your environment that you're in, the startup environment and the tech environment in Africa? I guess those are two different questions, but yeah, first, obviously I'd love to hear about your thoughts about Cubic. So our vision is what we see Cubic as is going to be a technology provider for the built environment so that we're able to make buildings more affordable, much more sustainable, and it does not contribute to climate change. That's who we want to be as a company. So as we grow and evolve, we actually want to be able to be a technology company that has these materials that can be licensed out to larger building materials companies so that they can use it. That's what we want to be. Now, we've had the starting point of uh, you know, a company that's making bricks and columns and all that. Yeah. And basically, so that's fascinating. You want to build like factories globally and be like a, you know, that kind of platform that enables high quality, you know, taking the waste and turning it into like the qualitative materials for buildings. That is pretty incredible. And then where do you see, you know, like the future of like the tech and startup scene in like Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa and everything, the entire continent? Yeah. I'm super bullish about it. You know, the amount of innovation that I see from fellow founders and, and just 
folks on the continent is just super phenomenal. And a lot of them are really rooted around sustainability. They're all rooted around how this can be accessible to lower income communities. And I think the reason why this is super important, it's not just from a philanthropic standpoint. Now, I'm a firm believer that unless you make a product or a service accessible to lower income communities in Africa, you're not going to scale and, and succeed because the unfortunate truth is that the majority of your customers are going to be low income. So they need to be part of your market strategy, go to market strategy, right? And I just see a lot of people that are really focused on that. And that's great. And I think that's why they're getting a lot of the attention from VCs. Now, what I do hope is that while investors, um, while you know, businesses get that type of support to the ecosystem, that policy is also able to become a supporter of, mm -hmm. of such businesses. Now, to talk a little bit about our, our industry, right? We're in manufacturing, we're in you know, construction, one of the biggest hindrances we that we could have faced is that you know government says well you know your bricks have not you know they're too new and you know you can't do this right or sure. we we don't believe in trash being into bricks and therefore we don't allow you to do that just as a very simple example now okay in our case the government of ethiopia saw such a huge potential to what we were doing that they actually supported us to really move fast I mean, our go-to-market strategy in Ethiopia was 12 months, but we fulfilled every KPI within the first five. And it, all of that had to do with just the policy and just, you know, the right people pushing us fast. Sure. Uh, we need to see a lot more of that in tech. And the reason why I feel that might be difficult to do, and we kind of witnessed that even in the U.S. sometimes, is policy makers, right, policy makers, sometimes don't understand enough about a technology and they see one bad thing happen and decide that the whole thing is bad, right? Yeah. And, and we can't be in that type of position. We need more technocratic policymakers in tech. Yeah. And, and hopefully that continues to happen in Africa. So far, it's been super encouraging. Well, this has been an Incredible like episode, a lot of learnings. I hope everybody who's listening in really enjoyed this discussion. And uh, you know, for those who want to connect with you, Kiduce, hopefully, you know, that we could accelerate the process of your company, Cubic, and maybe they can help you out more. We'll see. Um, and uh, so Kiduce Asfa, thank you so much for being part of the the Shaber show and sharing your story. Thanks so much, Shaber. This was really great. All right, everybody, thank you. Bye. Yeah.